Okay, well, let's look together at uh, Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Ezra 3, uh, 8 through 13. And if you're still turning there, while you're turning, I'll just share this little story that, uh, that kind of helps give some uh, perspective to the subject of today's message. A number of years ago, um, I was at a restaurant with uh, some friends. It was actually quite a number of years ago. But anyway, I was at, at a restaurant with some friends, and one of them ordered a dessert that he had never had before or even heard of. And so he inquired, asked the waitress, and she described it for him. And basically, it was like a, just a custard-type, you know, a sweet custard-type dessert. And she said she liked it, it was good, and he decided he would try it. So she served him, and uh, he told us he didn't particularly enjoy it. And so when the waitress uh, came back a few minutes later to check on him, she said, well, um, how'd you, how did you like your dessert? And he said, well, it wasn't really what I expected it to be. And she said, oh, well, what did you expect it to be? And he paused for a minute and said, tasty. Well, you know, life is kind of peppered with experiences where we don't get what we expected altogether, uh, where, where things weren't what we expected to be, where they weren't what we hoped for. And in a certain respect, we're living a whole chapter of that right now. It's like every page we turn of our own story right now um, has moments where things aren't maybe what we hoped for, or at least not altogether. So I want to speak to that subject this morning as we are beginning to wade back into the water of gathered worship uh, in a message that I've titled, Not All We Hoped For. It's from Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So let's look there together now, and I'll invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together. Beginning in verse 8, reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the Word of the Lord. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and head of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your true and living word as always, and we, we open it with the expectation you have something to say to us in it, and that you will, by your spirit, uh, cause it to come alive to us. 
Lord, you know all the needs we bring with us. You know what we need to hear from you and how we need truth and life to be ministered to us. And so we pray that you would speak your word by your spirit, through your servant and to your people for your glory because all of this worship is yours. Would you move me out of the way, God, and use my voice as an instrument to speak yours, we ask in Christ's name, amen. And if you're standing, you may be seated. Well, uh, the, the people of Judah, um, a pr- sort of leading up to what's recorded in the book of, of Ezra, the people of Judah have been carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. And it was, as if you're a student of the Bible, know about a 70-year captivity in total. It actually kind of, on the front end, unfolded over kind of a period of years. And finally, there was a sort of marked fall of Jerusalem um, and then a definitive point of return. Even the, gra- the, the return to uh, Israel was a little bit gradual too, but they were carried away into captivity by the Babylonians and they were held there unable to worship as they were really supposed to, like where and how they were supposed to. Jerusalem and the temple were the center of worship. They, they had three pilgrimage feasts they were supposed to um, go celebrate in Jerusalem each year. And of course, there was a sacrificial system that uh, all of that transpired in the temple. All of that was the, the focus of their worship, and they weren't able to do that for all those years in captivity. And then God showed favor to them um, over uh, after a period of about 50 years or so of that captivity. The Babylonians were uh, overthrown by the Persians, and King Cyrus actually issues a decree that they should go back to Jerusalem and build a house of worship for their God. So they, they actually do so, so, so they go back not only with permission, uh, but with a, a, a declaration that they should do so, a directive to do so. Um, and so that's what we read about. It's that return to uh, Israel that we read about in Ezra, and we actually read about also in Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. Those are all recorded uh, during that uh, time frame. But if we were to read on further in Ezra, we, we would find out that there were some conniving leaders of sort of the region around them that um, sometime later after Cyrus had died and a new king's in power, the, these, these kind of local folks uh, send a letter and say, hey, you don't want the Jews rebuilding here. They're, they're trouble, and they're going to be trouble for you. you, you ought, we recommend you issue a decree forcing them to cease construction of uh, the temple and everything else they're doing here. So, so that's what happens. There's, a, there's a, a new decree issued from a new king to stop construction, and so they do. And that actually goes kind of discontinued uh, for quite a period of time. It would be years later, uh, nearly 20 years actually, before that work was Completed, and another wave of Jews would return. So in this first group that came back to Jerusalem to reestablish, to rebuild the temple as a center of worship, it wasn't everybody who returned initially. Uh, some of them would come later. And, and, and all of that background, as I said, it's recorded Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. But all that background sheds light on uh, these few verses that we're reading this morning. In other words, if you only read those and you don't have the context, you don't appreciate 
all of what you're reading and all of what we want to draw from it. And so let me just kind of, in sort of summary fashion, visit what's here in the text, and then I want to make a couple of observations from that. But we see um, in verses 8 through 10 um, that there's, there's a certain symbolic force to the preparations that they're making. What I mean by that is if you look in verse 8, you see um, that they actually, be, I think it's in verse 8, they began this work in the, the, the second month of the year. Uh, that was actually not only the month of Passover, but it was also the same month when Solomon started building his temple. The one that they are replacing, essentially, they're rebuilding, is the temple that Solomon built that was torn down. Solomon started building in the second month. Solomon had gotten his supplies, uh, some of the materials from Tyre and Sidon, which in the verses preceding this, it tells us uh, they did as well. So they're, 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 they're sort of following in the footsteps of Solomon um, in not only what they're aiming to build, but even how they go about building that. We see that they have Levites overseeing the work, ensuring, because this is, this is a, a temple for worship, and worship is supposed to happen in, in just certain ways. And so their ensuring is built to specifications that will be suitable um, to that worship. And then we see also that there's, again, a sort of a symbolic force to how they're preparing in the fact that there's a little bit of pomp and circumstance, if you want to call it that, isn't it? If you, if you notice that in verse uh, 10, that it says uh, that, that, that when the builders laid the foundations, the priests came in their vestments and they came with trumpets and cymbals. I mean, they plan on making some noise. It's like, you know, kind of like a groundbreaking ceremony um, that we might have a lot of times and the news would be there and you take photos and that kind of thing. You, you make a bit of a to-do out of the fact that you're starting this, this construction. And so when they've laid the foundation, um, they, the priests come forward in their, in their vestments and uh, they got trumpets and cymbals. So this is like, you know, Thanksgiving with all the fixings, turkey, gravy and mashed potatoes and the dressing and cranberry sauce and everything, you know, they're making a big to-do. There's sort of some pomp and circumstance to... Uh, to the preparations they're, they're making. And like I said, there's a certain symbolic force to it. It's supposed to communicate the fact that this is a big deal and that we are picking up where Solomon and his descendants left off and we're rebuilding some of what was established under his reign. We, we also see then in verses, not only the symbolic force of those preparations, but in verses 11 through 13, kind of an emotional response to the construction, right? And you, you, you maybe picked up on that, but it says that all the people shouted with a great shout when they, uh, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the, of the house of the Lord had been laid. They shouted with a great shout. What, what a great thing that the foundation of the house of the Lord has been laid. But then it goes on to say, that's not the whole story, right? Because in verse 12, many of the priests and the Levites, the head of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice such that you, you couldn't even distinguish between what were the shouts of joy versus what were the shouts of wailing and mourning and disappointment, because that's what it was. This was a happy crying, okay? They weren't so elated about this that they, were, that they were crying with joy. They were disappointed 
because they remember, some of the older men, they remember how glorious Solomon's temple was. They have a picture in their head of what, of what that looked like, and this wasn't it. Even, even as it's just a laying on the foundation of whatever had been begun, they knew this, this wasn't it. <laughs> and it was, it was disappointing to them. And the loud shouts of joy were indistinguishable from the, from the wailing of disappointment. So I, I want to draw some comparisons this, this morning from, from their experience and ours, and their uh, they're, they're fairly loose comparisons, and certainly um, ours, our circumstances don't compare on the same scale with theirs. Um, but like them, our return to worship may be partly joyful, and it might be partly disheartening. Um, because we all remember what worship was like. It's not like we've been in captivity for 50 years. It's just two and a half months we've been at home. We all remember what worship was like. And it, and it wasn't this, what we're doing um, as we gather this morning. And even those who are, who are just watching online have, have received word about what our plans are. It, whatever worship was and whatever we imagined it was going to be, it probably didn't involve um, coming in and, and seats being six feet apart and people not being able to hug and touch each other and folks wearing a mask. It just, it wasn't this, what we imagined. And so whatever joy we have in returning to worship, it may be mixed with some disheartening and disappointed feelings as well. And so knowing that, if we just kind of coast ahead unconsciously, if we, just, if we just sort of take the first step this Sunday and the second step next Sunday, and we just sort of coast ahead unconsciously, sort of operating on autopilot, we're likely to make two mistakes that the people of Judah made when they set out to resume worship in Jerusalem. Um, and so I, I want to unpack those and there are to some extent kind of implicit, some more, more explicit than others. But anyway, two mistakes uh, that we might be prone to make if, if we wade sort of unconsciously back into worship. Mistake number one would be expecting church to be just like it used to be. Mistake number one is expecting church to be just like it used to be. Obviously, this was the expectation of some of the older men. Right? Whether they had been conscious of those expectations or not ahead of time, uh, the, the, the builders had the proper dimensions of the temple. And they had all the specs, and they, they had, they had re reconstructed the altar according to specifications. They had, they had laid the right footings or whatever for, for the temple. It was, it was beginning how it was supposed to be, but they could tell from the outset it just wasn't going to be as glorious as it used to be. And so they're weeping while everybody else is rejoicing. Their unmet expectations left them terribly disappointed. And we don't really know altogether how long it lasted, but it lasted. And I'll try to uh, draw that out as we go along. Well, for us, I mean, fairly early in this quarantine period, people, people started talking about what it was going to be like when we get to go back to church. And there were, there were kind of some humorous things circulating about how we're going to be high-fiving and rejoicing and, you know, doing cartwheels in, in the aisle and, and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, but it, we, you know, we thought of it, uh, you, you know, basically like there was this pause in our normal life and that at some point, you know, somebody was going to unpause and we were just going to resume back to normal. So, so we, might have, we might have imagined it being a little bit like a traffic uh, stop or when you're out on the highway and, you know, you come to a stop because somewhere up ahead there's a wreck. We, we've probably all experienced that on the interstate somewhere. And so uh, in a matter of time, usually seems like longer than it actually is, but in a matter of time, they get the wreck, cleared off the road, and traffic just resumes, right? It picks back up speed. You move on along. You see what happened, and then you're, you're, you're back on your way, normal trip. Um, we might be better served to think of what has happened to us is not just a wreck that stopped traffic momentarily, um, but it's an earthquake up ahead <laughs> uh, that stopped traffic because, because the whole highway's been separated and you can't just put it back together like it was. Uh, that there's going to have to, traffic's going to have to be rerouted in some respect. In other words, we're, we're, we're probably setting ourselves up for disappointment if we just think normal was paused temporarily and now it's being unpaused and everything's back to normal. A lot of folks have even used that language. I'm just ready for things to get back to normal. And if normal means just like they had been up until March, uh, we probably ought not to hope for that. Um, nobody knows uh, exactly what the future looks like, but it probably doesn't look entirely like the past. Actually, uh, ironically, I uh, made that statement in my first message of the year back in January, having no idea that we were going to uh, run into a pandemic. I'm actually going to bring that back out um, maybe even next week um, to sort of look at it again through these lenses. But the point is, uh, the, the future is not likely to look exactly like the past. And, um, and if we expect it will and insist that it will and try to recreate it that way, we're almost certainly setting ourselves up to get not all we hoped for and even to prolong the disappointment that results from that. So that's mistake number one, expecting the church to be just like it used to be. Mistake number two would be assuming gathered worship really isn't that important. So this doesn't actually uh, come directly from this passage so much. We, we, don't, we don't see that assumption um, immediately in the text here, but I, I think... We get it from the continuation of the story of these people in the book of Ezra and then more specifically what's written in the book of Haggai. Because what's obviously true here in this passage we just read is that there are younger men who have no experience worshiping in the temple, right? Um, they, it says uh, that in verse 8, the Levites from 20 years old and upward were appointed to supervise the work. So, so those in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s, they were born in captivity. Uh, they've never seen the temple. They've never worshipped in Jerusalem before. They've heard about it for sure. They're Levites. They are of the tribe of Levi. They are born to be leaders in worship. They're, 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 they're uh, born for that purpose. So there's got to be a certain elation now to have the opportunity to, to walk into that. 
And you can maybe just imagine how much that inspired some of the celebration coming out of the hearts of, and mouths of some of them. It's, a, it's an exciting prospect to be kind of recovering all of that. But what's interesting is once they were forced to halt construction, they weren't really motivated to resume it. And again, we don't get that so immediately right here in, um, in Ezra chapter 3, but actually we would see if we read on down in, uh, in chapter 5, nearly 20 years later, the building project resumes, and part of what gets them motivated is the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. It says, the word of the Lord says, get on with it. And uh, it doesn't say exactly that, but that's a paraphrase. But that's, that's kind of the message. And, um, and that got them motivated to resume the construction of the temple when a new king was in, in power and they would be enabled to do so. Um, and so the book of Haggai says this uh, about that prophecy. Again, so Ezra tells us that Haggai was, was one of the messengers that gets the work going again. But, but in the prophecy of Haggai, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, here's, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So in other words, he's, he, he's saying, or the, he's implying, there's been some conversation going on about should we or should we not continue rebuilding the temple because they've said, no, it's not yet time. It's not time yet to rebuild the temple. It's not like they, they have ruled out the possibility of that altogether or that they, they're not permitted to or anything like that, that. That's conceivably an option, but they dismiss it and go, no, nah, it's not really time. And so God says to them through, through Haggai, is it time for you to build your nice houses? Because y'all got some nice looking houses. And my house is lying in ruins. What about that? And so that, that's sort of how the message begins and it moves on from there and they, they continue with the work of rebuilding the temple. But once they had discontinued the work, they weren't really motivated to continue. They had other priorities on their mind and they had preferred to devote themselves to kind of getting themselves settled in uh, to their, their own houses and sort of way of life and that kind of thing. In other words, it just wasn't all that important to rebuild the temple. Now, you can check me out on that. You, you read the beginning of the uh, first couple of chapters of Haggai, uh, if you so dare. And uh, maybe there's only two chapters anyway, two or three. But, um, but anyway, see if I'm uh, representing that faithfully. But it doesn't seem all that important to them. And we can understand why it wouldn't be. Like I said, they've never experienced it. The younger folks have never experienced the temple before themselves. It's kind of a, a really inspiring idea, but it's not like when the work ceases, it's not like they've lost anything that they had before. Except, man, eh, not all that important. Well, there are indications that many people um, who have been churchgoers regularly since uh, we've been quarantined and and as that quarantine has lengthened, that, that people have disengaged from the church, even from online um, engagement or whatever. And uh, I, I'm sympathetic to that to a certain degree because I would be one to say um, it's not the same 
uh, online as it is in person in a lot of ways. Um, and a whole lot more could be said about that subject than I'm going to say today. But, um, but to, to, to be more specific about it, a, a Barna research group um, survey discovered 48% of churchgoers said that they had not uh, watched an online service from their church or, or of any sort. They had not watched any kind of online service in the, in the prior four weeks. So this was probably done a couple of weeks back. 48% of churchgoers hadn't engaged at all online. Uh, 40% said they had engaged with their own church's online service. 23% said they had engaged with other churches' online services. Now, all, all of that's kind of interesting data in a variety of ways, but, but most significantly what I'm saying is that there are indications uh, that people have disengaged altogether. And there are other indications that some of those who have disengaged are not going to be back to church gatherings anytime soon. And some of them won't be back at all. That, that's, nobody knows either one of those things because nobody kind of has the proverbial crystal ball to tell the future. Um, but that's what, uh, that, that's what the, the, the surveys and trends and so forth seem to suggest. Now, there's probably a variety of reasons why that might be true, and I'm not going to attempt to address that this morning either. Actually, some of, uh, some of this I may continue next week um, and, and connect some dots with something I'd spoken about earlier um, in the year, as I said. But, but here's what I will say. Whatever the reasons, whatever the reasons for that might be, that people would be delayed in their engagement or people might not plan to return at all, um, the church, by definition, is an assembly. Okay, so in the long-term scope of things, how, how we ought to think about the church, the church is by definition an assembly. The word ecclesia, which is translated church, is also just translated assembly. It is applied even in the book of Acts to a secular assembly like a town hall meeting. It's applied in the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Old Testament when the people of Israel assembled, like for a solemn assembly. It's ecclesia, assembly. The church is by definition an assembly. Now, what we ought to be quick to say is the church is more than that, okay? The church is much more than just a once a week gathering. So it does essential and important things besides just assemble. And the other thing we should say, the, the, the gathering doesn't have to happen in a big church building like the one I'm standing in right now, it doesn't have to happen in hundreds or thousands of people gathering, right? Um, it can be very small gatherings, and it is in many places around the world and has been many places through church history. There are many places where there's small gatherings because they can't, they're not even allowed to worship legally. And so if they did, or if they did loudly, that they'd be at risk of um, arrest and whatever would follow from that arrest. But the church must assemble. Okay, so it would be a mistake uh, to just assume that that gather that that church gatherings are not important. We would be we would be um, as 
sort of slack in our thinking as some of these folks were that Ezra's writing about, who rejoiced at one time and then were, were slow to pick back up the work of rebuilding the temple because it just didn't seem, seem um, important to them. The one other thing I should say about that uh, is sort of however, comma, uh, as the church, this is true now and it's true, true always, we have to respond to what is, not what ought to be. So it's one thing to talk about what people ought to think <laughs> about the church or how they ought to think. Um, but if we try to lead people from where they ought to be to where we want them to go, we'll stay real frustrated because we need to start with where people actually are. And, and so, so part of the heart of this message is to say uh, where some of us are, where some of others are, may be different than where we were before and our expectations are going to have to be adjusted accordingly. If we want to notice how God is at work with uh, uh, right now and participate with him, uh, we're going to have to begin by setting aside some of our assumptions and expectations. And we're going to have to allow our mindset to be recalibrated a little bit. And that'll mean avoiding the mistakes of expecting church to be just like it used to be avoiding the mistake of assuming gathered worship isn't really important. Because if we make either of those, we're surely going to find uh, that church is not all we hoped for. And let me just conclude by saying, however things unfold uh, in the next month, six months, 12 months, or whatever, whatever the impact is uh, on the church more globally, here's what we can be assured of. We will still have Jesus, <laughs> and he will still have us. Uh, we will still be people who go and make disciples of Christ, and we'll make disciples who make disciples. We will continue to preach and teach the word of God and administer sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we'll still do that together. We will still have one another, and we will still love one another. And those things I just mentioned are uh, some of the things most essential about what the church really is. Everything else is at least secondary, if not tertiary, or somewhere way down the list. And uh, so we can be encouraged by that to look beyond whatever disappointment we have, may have in the moment to see how God will build his church. And we can be thankful for that. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for um, that truth that, that the church is yours and um, that you are going to build it, that you're going to draw people to yourself, um, that you're going to do that how you will and you're going to do that in your timing. We thank you, God, that there are probably ways right now we're living in the midst of that you have done us the favor of snatching out of our hands things that we have clung to that we needed a long time ago to let go of but we couldn't loosen our grip from. And now, now it's just been taken from us. We don't even know what that is right now. But we thank you that it's true that, Lord, you've done so for the good of your people. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see it that way, God, and that you would give us a, a heart that desires 
to see things the way that you see them, Lord, that you would adjust our expectations um, of what the church is and ought to be and what our part is in it. And God, would you just renew the work you've done in our congregation in, in years past? Would you renew that, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and through us to continue to use our church as an, uh, as an instrument of, of how you want to bring grace and truth and life to the people in our community in the years ahead. Would you be so good to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.